I, I'm, I'm just going to begin with one passage that's sort of the overview of our whole day, and that's in 1 Peter, a passage that I know you know very well. But I find in it so much that uh, I think we, we tend to overlook it. We talk about, we know that we need to have integrity as a pastor, and we know we need to preach well and some things like that. But I think Peter gives us insight here that needs to undergird everything we do. I call it uh, being a counterintuitive pastor, that often the things that we want to do are exactly the wrong thing. And that we need to learn how to sometimes uh, do the thing that we don't want to do. Go against our, our first reaction and against our personality and do some difficult things. And so that's sort of what I'm going to talk about today, especially in this first session. But Peter says in verse 1 of First uh, Peter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, I just got to stop right there and say, I want you to see that really is the life of a pastor. We are witnesses both of the sufferings of Christ as well as the glory that shall be revealed. Now, that was quite literally true for Peter, wasn't it? Because he saw Christ crucified and he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw the glory of the coming kingdom. But is this not what pastors do? We, we look on the sufferings of Christ. We preach Christ crucified, but we, we understand the already not yet eschatology that we're in this overlap of two ages and we're always pointing people forward to the coming age. And it is the, uh, the, the blessings of that coming age that have reached back into history and been applied to our hearts now. And so we live in this it, you know, sometimes people might call it schizophrenic, but it's not schizophrenic. This is, this is what it is to be a follower of Christ. We are witnesses of both the sufferings and the glory. And does that not sum up what it is to be a pastor? It is, it is both suffering and it is glory. You're going to experience both. I know what you prefer, but you never get to the crown except through the cross. And you're never going to have the joy of being a pastor without some of the suffering. In fact, one of the things today that I want to talk about is that I think that you will find that the crises are sort of the, the, the growth points in your ministry and in your life. That you, you simply don't grow when things are going real well. I'm talking about you personally as a pastor. Where you're going to grow is when you are, you're having to deal with people that are hard to deal with, when you're hurting, when you're having to answer accusations or figure out whether or not to answer those accusations. And, and, and all these, these points of friction in the church, those are the places where God is most going to grow you and make you like Christ. So you're not going to get to the fun part of pastoring except through the hard part of pastoring. And I think Peter lays that out here for us. We're, we are witnesses of both the suffering and the glory. And it's living as a witness of both of those things that we minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then notice the verb he uses in verse 2, shepherd, shepherd the flock 
of God that is among you. I love that verb. Now, I believe uh, that there are three words uh, for the office that we call pastor uh, in the New Testament. I think they are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Uh, I don't think they're separate offices, and those offices are, the, the, those descriptions are pastor or shepherd uh, that Peter uses here, poimain, episkopos, which is overseer or bishop in the King James Version, and, uh, and then presbyteros, elder. I think that's the same office, and three descriptors of that same office, and I've also got to say, I realize maybe not everybody here is a Baptist, but you're going to be saturated in a Baptist ecclesiology today because that's what I am. And I don't know if you noticed the name on the shingle out front, but it's the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so we're going to talk about this, a, a Baptist perspective. So if you are something else, I'm, I'm delighted you're here. Uh, but you understand this is the perspective that uh, we're going to have, especially when we talk about the ordinances. But uh, Baptists have historically used these words interchangeably. It's interesting, in the, in the, uh, on the committee for the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, that within the committee there was objection to using the word elder. And so in that, the, the article that is now being discussed so much about uh, what a woman can and cannot do that she cannot uh, have the office of a pastor. Uh, that, that is there because uh, there were some on the committee that objected to the use of the word elder. I find that uh, strange because uh, like Buck Run, the church I pastor was founded in 1818 and in the original founding documents, you know, the, the, the pastor's called the elder. Uh, and the pastor. Both words are used. So this is historically what Baptists have used. And I, I think I can make that case exegetically from the, from the scripture that poimain, episkopos, presbyteros describe the same office. That's certainly the way that we've always taken it. But so he, he tells these elders, presbyteroi, to shepherd. And he uses the verb form of poimain, to shepherd the flock of God, now here's the part I think guys skip over, which is among you. I think a major mistake that a lot of, especially young pastors make is they're, they're shepherding their fantasy congregation and not their real one. They're thinking about the one that they will one day get or that they want and they sort of see the one where they are as a stepping stone to something else and that's just, first of all, it, it won't work. It simply won't work. People know when you love them and when you don't. They can sense that. And this is God's gift to you. The wife you have, that's the wife God gave you. Uh, and it's dangerous for you to be looking at other wives, isn't it? In the same way, it's a dangerous thing for you to keep your eye on other churches and think, man, one day I'll get there. One day I'll do that. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's where God put you. And in the providence of God, if that's where you are, then that's where you ought to be. So we're going to talk about the real world of your church. With all of its flaws, its hang-ups, 
the hokey things that they do that you hate and you wish you could get rid of singing happy birthday to everybody in the church on Wednesday night. You, you wish you could get rid of that, but you know it would start a war that you don't want to fight. And man, you grit your teeth every time they sing happy birthday. I, listen, I know all of this stuff. I, have, I grew up in a pastor's home. And I've been in the ministry since I was 19, and I've pastored and been a part of every size of church there is, from very tiny churches to mega, mega churches. And they all got their stuff. It's just like there is no perfect church, just like there's no perfect husband or wife. Uh, you're going you're gonna to pastor a church that is flawed and that is not your ideal church, and you're going to have to live with some things. And that is part of the art of shepherding the flock of God that is among you. It's his flock. And it's not your church. It's his church. It's his flock. You're merely an under-shepherd. You're tending them for him. And he says, exercising oversight. Well, look at that. There's, there's the episkopos word. Again, uh, Peter uses all three words here. Uh, in either a noun or a verb form, exercising oversight. But what kind of oversight is it? Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain. By the way, if you got into the ministry for money, you're stupid. <laughs> There's not a lot of money to make in the ministry, you know? Uh, not, not Certainly not in a typical local congregation. There's just... Not much money to be made. And so he, he says, that's a bad motive. But eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, this is what we want to talk about all day, is basically how to, how to do that. And uh, I'm just going to quickly go through what I call uh, 10 challenges of ministry as Am I up there? I don't know. We'll see if we, if I can, if these guys can get this up here. Let me go back one slide. Here we go. All right, I'm going to go through these sort of quickly uh, because here's the bad news. Here's the stuff that's hard about being a pastor, all right? Let's, let's just get it out on the table. Let's talk about why what we do is different from what any other job is, all right? The first thing is uh, a pastor deals with the eternal and spiritual nature of things. You know, um, if you're a doctor, the worst thing you can do is kill somebody. And that's bad. If you make cars, the worst thing you can do is make a car that kills somebody. I mean, those are serious things. But if you're a pastor and you preach the gospel wrongly, you preach a false gospel, you send people to hell. So the eternal and spiritual nature of things makes our job tougher than any other because I would argue that it's more important. It, it doesn't have to do only with this life and this world, but with the life and the age to come. Secondly, a pastor's role is prophetic in nature. You are called of God to address people who are often in sin and 
are living lives that are out of the will of God, and it's your job to confront them. But there's, there's one minor hitch, and that is they pay your salary. <clears throat> You're called to have a prophetic voice to the people who then turn around and pay you to do that. And they frequently don't like that you do that. And so sometimes they're going to say, well, then we don't want to pay you. You're fired. And so here, th this is a challenge to have that role of a shepherd, uh, an overseer, an elder. And you've got to speak difficult things, hard things to people who then pay your salary. It's prophetic in nature and it's a challenge. Number three. The pastor leads an army of volunteers. You know, if you are a job and a, a boss in a secular job and someone's not doing their job, what do you do? You, you call them in and you say, now look, if you want to keep this job, you've got to up your game. You've got to perform better. And you have over them a paycheck. And they've got to do what you say because you have that authority and that, that motivator of a paycheck over them. But when it comes to the church, man, so the people keeping your nursery aren't doing as good a job of that as you want them to do, what are you going to do about that? See, you, you, you've got no paycheck over them in most cases. You're going to have to lead them to do what you want them to do, what you believe they need to do. But how do you motivate them? They're, they're volunteers. They're there on their time. They're there out of the goodness of their hearts. And how do you set that spirit and that standard in everything you do so that they want to be there and to do the job the way you tell them it needs to be done? That's a great challenge. Uh, number four, in most churches, the pastor has an unclear identity. Now, I will tell you, this is, this is true across all forms of Baptist polity. Uh, you can be in a church that is, uh, has a single pastor. You can be in a church that has multiple pastors. You can be in a church that is elder-led, and you've got a collection of lay elders and paid staff elders. I don't care what the model of the church you're in. If you ask people in the congregation, what do you think is the pastor's or the elder's number one task? What's his most primary task? job. You're going to, if you ask 10 different people, you'll probably get six different answers. Some are going to say it's his job to teach the word. Some are going to say it's his job to reach the lost. Some are going to say it's his job to lead us in missions. It's his job to care for the congregation. You're going to hear a lot of different answers and it's not clearly spelled out. And if you do have a job description, a church that gives you a job description, somewhere there they're going to put something like other duties as expected by the church, you know. And uh, that's the one that's going to catch everything. So you've got an unclear identity. What is my primary task? And often the pastor has a different view of what that primary task is than the church does. And this is going to bring conflict. So it's a, it's a great challenge. Number five an increasing uncertainty about church polity. Uh, again, this is, I think, something that we've seen reflected in the last two decades, especially when I came to Southern, <clears throat> nobody was really talking about elders. And, uh, you know, in, in fact, 
I think elders was a word that I saw used in uh, extremely reformed churches, uh, and that was it. And but most churches just had a pastor, and he had an associate pastor and staff. Uh, but then, as the, by the way, as the church grows, even with that model, your governance changes. Uh, if you're in a small church, chances are good you have monthly business meetings and you vote on everything, including the brand of toilet paper you're putting in the bathroom. Whereas as the church grows lar larger, that just becomes impractical and you'll operate a different way. At some point, uh, neither the church nor you want that kind of stuff to be discussed by hundreds of people and you're going to sort of have a, a more uh, defined budget and you're going to operate from that budget but you're not voting on a lot of stuff and the longer a pastor is there the more trust the church has in him typically the more he is able to make unilateral decisions or decisions with the staff and maybe other lay leaders in the church polity sometimes changes uh, there's what we have in our bylaws and all that and then there's what we actually do I think we all know that that a lot of times bylaws and constitutions come out of church turmoil and they so at Buck Run the very first time I looked at their constitution and bylaws uh, I, I read it and I looked up at the search the uh, pastor search committee and I said tell me when the church split because I could tell by reading the document that there had been a split and that the whole purpose of the, of the document of their bylaws was to keep a power base from ever building up in the church. I mean, it was so obvious to me that's what had happened. And sure enough, back in the 60s, the church had split. And uh, you, we used to be on the Elkhorn Creek at a little place called the Forks of Elkhorn. If you look across the creek, there's the Calvary Baptist Church. That is the split from Buck Run in the 1960s. And uh, today, I think they run like 20 or 30, not, not very many. But and back in the 60s, there, it was an existential threat to Buck Run. They really, the, the plan when those people split off was we'll siphon off everybody and everybody will end up coming over here and leave them with 20 or 30. Well, it didn't work that way, but I could read in the documents that's how it was. And so that bylaw, those bylaws that were written for a church that had just gone through, and basically a small church that had gone through a split in the 1960s, and it was a church that had basically a new pastor every one and a half to two years. And so that's not at all who Buck Run is now. So Buck Run is 202 years old in January, and uh, we have had 77 pastors in 202 years. Now, Bob Jackson and I, my predecessor and I, are 36 of those years. So you take the two of us out, and you you can see how quickly they're turning over. Past, and by the and the first two pastors were there for I think a total of about 25 years. So there's four of us, and then there's all those others. Uh, if you've been to the old Lifeway campus in Nashville, the J.M. Frost Building was there. He was pastor of Buck Run for like nine months. At one time. So uh, here's a church that has this history of just a high turnover of pastors. And so you're going to have a weak pastoral uh, role. And the lay people who are there are going to have the greatest clout in the church. 
And that's the way it was for a long time. So you've got to sort of look at the history of the church to see why things evolved the way they did. When I went to Buck Run, there was a man named Buddy Costigan, who's now with the Lord. But Buddy had such clout in the congregation that I have copies of in the 1980s and 90s when the church went through a, a capital fundraising campaign, the letter to the membership did not go, come out from the pastor. It came from Buddy. It was Buddy who was asking the congregation to give it up, man. We can do this. We can build. And they trusted Buddy more than they trusted the pastor because the pastor was going to come and go, but Buddy was still going to be there, and he was one of them, and they knew him and trusted him, and so he had all the clout in the congregation. He, he was a good and godly man, and he used it well. He, he, he wasn't self-serving, but I can understand why the church had such confidence in him. So you've got this un increasing uncertainty about church polity that's a mixture of your documents and then your history, just the way it evolves and the personalities involved. And so if you ask people at Buck Run, so is our church congregation approved, pastor led? Uh, I mean, I guarantee you, you're going to get multiple answers. We, you know, we try and be clear, but the reality is people that come in the door, uh, especially after I've been there 16 years, they, they're just like, well, you know, Dr. York's our leader. That's that. And there's, there's more to it than that, but I understand why they would just simplify it like that. But if you're in a church where there's been a turnover of pastors in rapid succession, that's not going to be their answer. They're not going to say that guy's the leader. Because they anticipate that he'll leave. All right. Uh, next uh, challenge is uh, the church expects the pastor's family to be involved. Now, if you're a principal of a local high school, nobody, that, you know, the school board isn't going to complain to you that your wife never shows up at school. But if you're a pastor of a church, your wife and your kids and their involvement is going to make or break you. It matters. Now, I'm going to talk more about this later today, uh, and especially uh, at the Expositor Summit on Wednesday. I've got a breakout session where I'm going to talk about uh, basically leading through your marriage. I, I think it's huge. I've got my, like I told you, all these Buck Run guys will tell you that apart from the word of God itself, my credibility at Buck Run comes from my marriage. The thing that makes people say, I'm going to listen to this guy at Buck Run is my marriage to Tanya. Apart from the Bible itself, they listen because of the Bible, but I think they tolerate me because of my marriage and Tanya. And people go, okay, we want what they've got. And it's a real key but can I just be honest, not every pastor has the marriage that I'm blessed with. Not all wives are in the way Tanya is in. And man, she's really in my ministry. She, I, I, I joke, she's like a sheepdog. Now, I know that's not a flattering thing, but the way I mean it, it is. Because you know what a sheepdog does? A sheepdog sees sheep breaking that way. What does that sheepdog do? It goes that way to hurt them back. And, and this is Tanya. She can tell when someone started drifting and she, oh, she'll sit by them Wednesday night supper or she'll say, we need to ask so-and-so out to dinner. We need to spend some time with them. 
she's just always watching what needs to be done. And because I'm a so, uh, I'm I'm an introvert by nature, and second, I'm busy. A lot of times, I just don't see stuff. And so, man, Tanya, she's just making stuff happen that saves me a lot. And this has worked well for me, but I've often thought, what about the pastor whose wife is not like that, or she has her own career? And, uh, and then you've, if you've got a bunch of little children, I mean, obviously she can't be involved at the same level Tanya is if she's raising four kids at home. So uh, this is a challenge for pastors. What level of expectation is right when do I need to make sure my wife is there and involved? When do I need to protect her and tell people they, their expectations are unreasonable? That's a challenge to us because, uh, let's be honest, the, the Scripture gives the church the right to examine your family. So you don't get to say that's none of your business. Oh, it is their business because if you aren't leading your home well, you can't lead the church well. I mean, that's exactly what the scripture says. So you've got to do both things. You, your wife has to be involved, but there's a level of reasonable expectation, especially as your church grows and there's a lot of different activities. You know, your wife isn't going to be able to be involved in everything. And so how do you establish those boundaries and those guidelines? And how do you shepherd your wife to be involved and get her to be, feel a part of the team, not merely an appendage, not merely someone you come home to, but truly a part of your pastoral ministry, that's a challenge. It's, and it's something that the church, uh, that pastors face that no one else faces. Number seven is the belief that the pastor should be the initiative taker. You're going you're gonna to live with this your whole pastoral ministry. Nobody expects, if they get into legal trouble, that their lawyer hears about it and calls them on the phone or comes and visits them and says, I'm, you know, how can I help you? No one expects their doctor to just magically get word that they're sick and then call up and uh, say, hey, can I, can I treat you? But man, they expect their pastor to know when anything's happening and they expect you to take the initiative to contact them. And if somebody gets bent out of shape about something and they drop out of church, and uh, let's say, especially in a larger church, you don't even, it, it might be weeks or even months before you notice you haven't seen somebody for a while. Uh, and you, you haven't called them or anything. No longer is their complaint the thing that originally they dropped out for. Now their complaint is, you know, I've been going to that church 20 years and I when I quit coming, they, nobody even bothered to call me. And it becomes now about your lack of concern. So, man, this is a challenge. And how do you keep up with your people when, I mean, it's unrealistic for you to know intuitively who's there and who's not. But this is the expectation of people. So, wow, what a challenge we have that really <clears throat> nobody else has. Number eight. The demand for originality. Uh, how many times a week do you preach? Anybody here preach three times a week? All right. Three times a week. If you preach three times a week, <coughs> about 45 weeks a year, that's the equivalent of writing nine novels. But here's the thing. 
you don't get to repeat material, right? Especially illustrations. You know, uh, if you use the same illustration, you know, people remember illustrations. They remember stories better than they'll not. They will never remember your outline. You could preach the exact same sermon with the exact same outline and just change your illustrations. They'll never know you preach the same sermon. But if you put the same illustration in a different sermon, they'll go, I heard that sermon before. Uh, that's just the way the human mind works. You can rail against it all you want. That's just the way the human mind is. And uh, that means that there's a constant pressure on you to be studying the text, coming up with outlines, coming up with illustrations. You know, and it doesn't matter how many people are sick in the hospital. It doesn't matter if you've been on vacation or you've been taking care of your elderly parents or whatever. Uh, that, that constant demand is always there. It never lets up. And you know, this is what I teach my students here at Southern. Is they come in sometimes with, when an assignment is due and they go, hey, I'm, Dr. York, could I have just one more day on this and I'll, I'll have this done? And I say, well, in what church will that work? On Sunday morning, 1045, Herschel York's going to have to have a sermon ready. And it, I don't get to get up and say, can you people come back tomorrow and I'll have this done? <laughs> so that constant challenge of originality is, is a pressure that I feel every single day of my life. When I'm on vacation, I know as soon as I get back, I'm going to have to be preaching and teaching. When I'm here at the seminary, I know I'm going to be teaching. I, I, so I teach a Sunday school class. Right now I'm in Jeremiah on Sunday morning. I'm uh, preaching through the book of Luke on Sunday morning. And then I teach, I'm teaching the Genesis on Wednesday night. Uh, so that's three things a week that I'm having to come up with. Now I'm going to spend more time on that, on the, the Sunday morning sermon than anything, but I'm not just getting up and winging the others. I am having to prep for that. It's a constant pressure. Uh, number nine, churches often give the pastor responsibility without authority. When I pastored First Baptist Church in Marion, Arkansas, while I was in seminary, the church was right by the, uh, the interstate and the courthouse. And between those two things, we were constantly getting demands. People would stop by. They had some benevolence request. And it was my first month there as pastor. Someone stopped by. And I said, I'm sorry, I, you know, I just, I can't help you. And the next Sunday, one of my members came to me and said, Pastor, I heard somebody came by the other day and asked for help, and you didn't help them. I said, well, that's, that's true. And they said, well, that's, that's bad. That's, you know, that makes us look bad. You're not helping people. And okay, well, I'll do that. So the next time somebody stopped by, we had a little petty cash thing. I, I went in there, and I got $40 and gave them $40, which in 1988 was enough to get it a tank of gas and some food. And uh, next thing I knew, I'm answering to the finance committee because I gave away $40 out of the petty cash. Well, I said somebody needed it. Well, how do we know that? You know, and I'm, it's, well, uh, that incident never left my mind because that is what it feels like. They expect you to do something. When you do it, they go, hey, who, who told you you could do that? Uh, especially the earlier you are in your ministry at a church, the more you're trying to find those things. So this is a, a great challenge. And then finally, uh, a pastor faces difficulty with friendship development. This friendship development difficulty is a real concern because you're going to 
you're going to need friendships. You're going to want friendships. But they're going to come at a certain cost. First of all, when you develop friendships in the church, um, some people are going to accuse you of playing favorites. And, you know, this, this person or this couple gets all your attention. Secondly, um, and I hate to tell you this, but in the way church life works, sometimes the people who have been your closest friends will turn on you. And it, it is a knife in the gut. Um, I have felt it and I have seen it. And so I will tell you that I have learned to develop friends in the church, but I, I'd be lying if I told you that I, am, that I am not always conscious that I can't just say everything that I think. I was called uh, to Ohio one time to moderate a business meeting of a church where there was great rancor and a division in the church and a large group of the people wanted the pastor out. And I sat at a table on a platform like this. There I was in the middle and there was the pastor on one side and the chairman of deacons on the other. And the chairman of deacons was very supportive of the pastor, but there was a large group of influential members that wanted the pastor gone. And they said they had accusations against him. So that's why I was called in to sort of moderate this meeting, to hear the accusations. And the whole church said, we trust your judgment. You say this stuff is spurious, we'll drop it. And if there's some, if, if he needs to go, and he, he said he would take my advice. And so knowing nothing, I go and I sit and I listen. And one by one, they come to the microphone and they tell stuff that there's really no there there. Stuff like, well, I... You know, one day I saw him look at a woman and I could just tell in his eyes that there was lust. And like, you know, did he do anything? Did he wolf whistle or anything? Like, no, I just know. Well, it was that kind of stuff, stuff that just didn't hold water. But then I saw finally after probably 10, 15 people had come up with accusations that really held nothing. I saw the pastor begin to squirm as one man came to the microphone. And the man told that he and his wife had been the best friends of the pastor and his wife. And that they had uh, shared their feelings about certain church members. And he began to tell them, including the pastor's assessment of his chairman of deacons. Uh, and he called him henpecked and said, well, you know, his wife rules the roost and wears the pants in the family and began to quote, uh, and I immediately saw the support of the chairman of deacons evaporate. I saw the pastor slink down his chair. He asked for us to take a break, and he and I stepped in the next meeting, in the next room, and he said to me, he said, am I done here? I said, you're done here. I mean, I, I and it, it was not that he had done anything horrible, but now he had lost the support that he had to have to survive this. And it was simply because of saying things that, Really, he had no business saying. They weren't awful things, but they were private thoughts. It's just not wise to share with a church member. What I'm telling you is, even when you have friends in the church, you're, you've still got to be on. There's never a point at which you just say, I, I, I can say anything I think. I can have that kind of relationship. Being in ministry is often like spiritual triage. You're, you're going to put people in three categories. And that is, there are those people, 
It doesn't matter how much time you give them or what you pour into them. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to change. They're, they're going to do their own thing. And when you identify those people, it's good to just say, okay, I, I, I can't waste more time on them because they're not listening anyway. Then there are those people that, man, they're mature Christians. They're following the Lord fine just by listening to the preaching and they're in the word and they've got a spiritual depth and maturity. Now, these are the people you most would like to spend time with. But you're going to spend your time with that third group. And those are the people who they can make it as Christians. They can persevere, but they're going to need a lot of help, discipleship, direction. And you got to sort of, if you don't keep counseling them, their marriage could break up. And so you've got to spend a lot of time with them. And those are the people you're going to spend most of your time with. You'd like to spend time with those mature Christians, but as you, your church grows and you get more of that third category, that's where you're going to spend the bulk of your time. So this is a challenge for pastors and their wives. They often hunger for deep friendships but they're limited in their ability to have them because they don't want to be open to the charge of favoritism and they don't want to let their guard down and say things that they ought not to say. So these are our, our challenges. Now, how do we deal with the challenges? Now, I'm, I don't have slides for this, but I'm going to just go through. I've got a bunch of things, and I think this is going to bleed over into the next section. I don't think I'm going to get through all my stuff here. But I want to talk about what I call being the counterintuitive pastor. And there are some things I think that I hear pastors today uh, sometimes verbalize. They, they believe that I think is sort of the exact opposite of, of the way it is. <clears throat> so I'm going to tell you a few things that I think you need, to, you need to just build into your ministry. All right? And I think it will help you meet these ten unique challenges. First thing is, the pastoral ministry has to be based on the Word of God. It has to be based on the Word of God. You need to be a preacher more than anything else you do. But when I say that, I'm not saying that's all you need to be. I'll get more to that in a moment. But I do believe you can't... You're, the success of your ministry can't go beyond the level of your preaching. I, I do believe that. So it's possible to be a great preacher and still fail as a pastor. But I don't think you can really be a good pastor if you're not delivering the word in the pulpit because that's going to be the primary means of discipling your people. It's the one thing you do that touches everybody in your church. So you can be a great guy, you know, visiting people and going and spending time with them. Uh, and that's great. And that will, that will definitely help build your church. But it's not going to deepen them in the word unless you're teaching the word. Remember, the way you handle the word in the pulpit is the way they're going to handle it in their private lives. So my strategy at Buck Run is not merely to preach well but by doing it to model for them how they can study the word as well. And what happens is you, by the way, you can go to our YouTube channel and all of our Sunday school classes are online. And I challenge you, go there and look at Tanya teaching through the gospel of Mark. 
She'll, she'll blow your socks off. Tanya doesn't know Greek. And, and Tanya has not been to seminary. But what has happened is she sat under my preaching and teaching, and she does exactly what I do. She doesn't have some of the tools available to me, but she's still she's going for it. You listen to her teach, and she's got a clear proposition. She's got applicational points where she's telling them what to do with this text. She's explaining it. She's showing the literary structure of it. I mean, she amazes me. And she'll tell you that that's from now almost 39 years of being married to me and just this is what he does, this is what I do. And you hear that in our teachers. There's a, there's a methodology to it. And the way I... So, like, if I say at Buck Run, I get up and I often say it. Watch these guys. They'll answer for me. All right? Context is? That, it, that My church usually says it with more enthusiasm than that. <laughs> I caught them off guard. But I say that at Buck Run. I go, context is? And they shout at me, everything. I've drummed that in their heads because they were accustomed to hearing verses ripped out of context and used to teach like when I came there they were praying healing in the atonement I'd hear them pray over somebody and go now Lord we know that by your stripes we're healed and you know you don't want Billy Bob here to have this cold and uh, this is the devil and man it was just an atrocious uh, usage of uh, misusage of scripture uh, and I, I drummed it into their heads okay let's just look at the content let's see what Peter does with that passage about by his stripes are healed. And is Peter there talking about the spiritual benefits, the spiritual healing, or is he talking about physical healing? Well, if Peter's talking about spiritual healing, don't you think that's the way we should interpret that too? And uh, I've, I've taught them context. And so now you don't hear people ripping stuff out of context. Uh, so you've got to base, uh, let me say this, you, you've got to be good at preaching You've got to give it its time. You've got to give it its due. You need to study the craft. You need to hone your craft. Uh, really deliver the goods in the pulpit. <clears throat> All right? That, that You can't really succeed if you aren't teaching the word well. But number two, being a good preacher is not necessarily the same thing as being a good shepherd. I, I need you to hear both sides of this thing because... Often, preachers tend to lean one way or the other. Don't buy into the notion that if you just preach well and faithfully, all these people are just going to show up and keep showing up. So when I was 28 years old, I heard John MacArthur preach at the Arkansas Baptist Pastors Conference, and he gave the history of Grace Community Church and him being called there, and he, he said it. He said, you know, I just preached the word and all these people just started showing up and I just kept preaching the word and more people showed up. And I heard that as a 28 year old and I said, okay, that's, that's it right there. That's the thing. I'm, I'm just going to focus on my preaching. And I did. And what I learned is the people who came did learn something. I think I was very faithful as a preacher but then I saw a lot of people dropping out and I, and then we weren't reaching other people and you know what I learned? Pastoring a church well is extremely hard work. And it requires a vast skill set. Now, I, I want you to hear me 
give priority to the preaching of the word. That's why I led with that. But now you need to hear me say, you're going to have to do a lot more than that. Don't, don't believe MacArthur on that. That might have happened at Grace Community Church. It will not happen at your church. Uh, it, it, when you look in the mirror, it's not John MacArthur looking back at you. You're no John MacArthur. And a lot of times I hear guys, they do that. They model themselves after Mark Dever, John MacArthur. I'm just going, chances are you're not going to be Mark Dever. You're not going to be John MacArthur. You need to be you. And you're going to have to master a lot of different things. It's hard work to grow a church. And there's no magic. We built a building, moved into a, a big building. I will tell you, that we, this staff, we work hard for every single new family we get. I can't tell you how many hours go in to follow up and meeting with them and writing notes to them. And, man, it's hard work. And, uh, you know, if, if anybody, had, I tried to tell them when we built that new building, it didn't mean just hundreds of people are just going to st start showing up because we've got this big new building. It's still extremely hard work. It's easier than it was at the other building. We're closer to town. We've got more room. We've got more parking. It's easier, but it's still hard. So don't think that being a good preacher is the same thing as being a good shepherd. Third, <clears throat> the success of your ministry depends on the strength of your calling, not the strength of your gifting. What's going to keep you in it is that you are called. You know, I told you I'm teaching to Jeremiah on Sunday mornings in Sunday school. And man, I had that passage last week where Jeremiah, he's just done. He's done. He says, I, I will no longer speak in his name. I, I can't do this anymore. But there was a fire in my bones and I could not keep silent. I'm telling you guys, there are times that I would have walked away if I could have done anything else. But the thing is, the Lord called me so early. I, I was 10 years old when I really felt the Lord call me in the ministry. And I've, this is what I've prepared for my whole life. I can't do anything else. There's nothing else for me to do. I have shut myself up to this one thing. And there, that has been a grace in my life because if I weren't so convinced of my calling, there are many times that I would have just walked away from it. There are a lot of people out there far more gifted than I, but they washed out. Because what I am convinced of is that the Lord called me to do this. I can't do anything else. And that is what has kept me in it. So you're not going to succeed in ministry. When I say success in ministry, I'm not talking about your, your church becoming one of thousands or anything like that. I'm talking about faithfulness. That's success in ministry. Are you faithful to the calling? And God can take people with really, uh, I think, average gifts and do extraordinary things with them. But I've seen some guys that I just thought, man, that guy's got it. Oh, he's got it. And then I, I see him just wipe out. So success, the success of your ministry depends on the strength of your calling, not on your gifts, not on your personality. Which leads me to number four. 
listen to me here, your personality is not an excuse for anything. Uh, I see people, uh, this isn't a criticism, it's just an observation. I see people on Twitter posting their uh, Enneagram thing, you know, what they are, that which means nothing to me. But people that are into that, I guess they know what that, that means. I, I don't even know the purpose of that because um, I, I don't care what your personality type is. God's put you in a position and in a role that is bigger than your personality. And I see this all the time in my preaching classes. Uh, so I, I have a guy, guy preach, and the, this, these Gen Z guys, you know, Gen X and Gen Z guys, they get up, and they've grown up on TV screens and computer screens and text messages and blogs, and they're incredibly articulate. They're incredibly verbal with written language. But when it comes to getting up and speaking in front of a crowd, they just are lost. Go to a blogger's convention sometime. You want to just really be depressed at <laughs> the ability of people to communicate. And so I get these guys up there and, and they talk real monotone and they, you know, like this and they use the word like a thousand times and, you know, and like, and I'm like, well, and he's like, I know. And the, the, the whole sermon is like that. And when I get through, I tell them, like, man, you had no energy. You didn't move. You, you didn't do anything to grip us. I mean, everything you said was fine, but you, you put me to sleep. And here's what they'll say. Well, that's just not who I am. Oh, now you get the speech. If you say that's not who I am, you get the speech. And here's the speech. <clears throat> Who you are, your personality, is not only not an excuse for anything, your personality is the problem. <laughs> Sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit overcomes your personality. I told you, I'm, I'm an introvert. Everybody that works for me can tell you that, you know, you put me on a platform in front of a thousand people, I'm right at home. You put me in a Christmas party, I am as ill at ease. I'm like a cat in a room of rocking chairs. I'm just nervous. It's hard for me. I, I, I like to sort of find the corner seat, and I will sit there. And I'm happy to talk to anybody who wants to come talk. What I can't do well is work the room. And here's Tanya, man. Tanya's working the room. By the time she's done, she can tell you everybody's Social Security number and how much they make. <laughs> I mean, people just tell her stuff. She just, she just gets them to talk. And I just admire that so. Uh, but you know what? Here's what I do not get to do as a pastor. I don't get to go sit in that corner chair. I have to work the room. On Sunday mornings, you know, when I'm done preaching, I want to go just moan in my office is what I want to do. Like, oh, that was so bad, you know. What I got to do is go stand in the lobby and stay there, and I'm among the very last to leave every service because anybody that wants to talk to me can come talk to me. I'm going to stand there and talk to them. And uh, I, I don't get a pass because I'm an introvert. People want to know I care. They want to know they have access to their pastor. And you have to, you have to just be honest about your personality and say, okay, how can the Holy Spirit help me overcome these tendencies that keep me from being effective in, in the pastorate.
and this is counterintuitive. We always default to our personality. And we excuse ourselves. But, you know, that doesn't work in any other arena of life. You know, if you're late with a payment and your mortgage company calls you and says, hey, we didn't get your payment, you, you got to pay up. You say, oh, you know, I'm just a procrastinator. That's just who I am. Then they go, oh, well, we didn't know that. We, uh, we'll put that in your record. We understand that. That's who you are. Does that happen? That does not happen. It doesn't happen with your wife. You know, here you've left your dirty underwear on the floor four days in a row. And she says, I'm tired of picking up your underwear. And you say, well, you know, that's just who I am. And she goes, oh, well, in that case, you know that doesn't happen. Isn't it true that most of the disagreements are about your personality? It might be your tone of voice. It might be your procrastination. But you don't get to say that's just who I am. And you don't get to say that in the ministry either. Don't default to your personality. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you overcome your personality. Uh, and, you know, God will do that by his grace. This is, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He helps you overcome who you are so that you can be who God wants you to be for his glory. <clears throat> Number five, loving people and leading people are inseparable for the pastor. So we tend to, pastors tend to put themselves in one of these two categories. Either they see themselves as sort of the CEO type pastor. Uh, back when I went to seminary, uh, there was a certain church growth. I mean, the church growth movement was in full swing in the 80s. And they were talking about going from being a shepherd to being a rancher. Oh, that sounds lovely, doesn't it? There's just one problem. Jesus never talked about ranchers. Peter doesn't address ranchers. We're, we're still shepherds. Obviously, the larger your church grows, there's other ways you have to do it. But, but you still got to be accessible. You, you've got to uh, love people, not merely lead people. There are others that they think that they can do away with the upfront leadership stuff if they are just kind and, and loving. Now, my dad was... Just a, a wonderful, godly man. He was a pastor, and he was in that category. And for seven years, my dad was on my staff uh, at Ashland Avenue in Lexington. <clears throat> People asked him, how'd that work? You know, your dad be on your staff. It was really quite easy. We just both did whatever my mother told us to do, and uh, it worked real well. But seriously, my dad had always been a small church pastor. <clears throat> and at Ashland Avenue, we just saw incredible growth. Uh, the church more than doubled in the seven years that I was their pastor. And when I left, they were running around twelve or 1,300. And my dad said to me one day, he, 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 he talked about the difference that he saw in his ministry and mine. And he was so very encouraging and very complimentary. But he told me he, he thought that it got down to two things, that uh, my dad did a, sort of a different style of preaching. It was uh, more topical preaching. And he was more of a poet. Uh, he would take this nifty phrase and he would in, in from the Bible and he would preach his systematic theology through this phrase. It almost didn't matter what passage it came from. He was going to infuse it with what he wanted it to say. <clears throat> and what he said was true. It just always had, it rarely had anything to do with the surrounding passage. 
And he, he noted that. And then the second thing he said was leadership. He said, uh, he said I, I thought that simply being a loving pastor would make people follow me. And I realized it didn't. Uh, and he was. He was just an incredibly warm, generous, kind, I mean, very fatherly, grandfatherly as he aged. But um, I, I, watched, I watched him lose control of a church one time. That uh, looking back on it, uh, I think, man, if he had just exerted a little bit stronger leadership, uh, he, he could have saved saved it. And I would tell you, don't put yourself in one or the other category. You've got to figure out how to do both. You have to have the love for your people that really makes you embrace them with all their quirkiness, their weirdness, um, their crabbiness. You've got to love them. But you have to be the leader. You, you have to be the guy who says, look, here's the way We've got to walk. Now, walk with me as we do that. You can't surrender one to the other. And again, I think our tendency is to sort of to define which of those two we're more comfortable with and make that what we do. You cannot afford to do that. You've got to love them and lead them. <clears throat> Number six, your marriage will either be an asset or it will be a detriment but it will not be neutral. Do we have any single guys in here? Couple? Great. I would just tell you this. Keep this in mind when you get married. As you choose a spouse, understand, she's either going to add to your ministry or she's going to detract from it, but what she will never be is neutral. And that is absolutely a fact. I've Spent my life with pastors, and their wives are either an asset who expand their ministry, or she is a detriment and she shrinks his capacity. The task for you is to lead your home and your wife so that it is not in conflict with the church, but rather works with it. And I've got to say that there's an underlying theological conviction here, and that is that there's no conflict between the callings of God on your life. God, there can't be a conflict between you being a pastor and a husband if God called you to both of them. Now, Jesus says in Matthew 19 that God puts you with your wife. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So if you're married, God puts you together. It's just that simple. And <clears throat> If you're in a pastor of a church, God puts you in that church. So your task is to make sure that your leadership in both things is consonant with one another. And to have the right balance, to use one to bless the other, that's your challenge. Uh, and so I, I hear more and more guys think, they say things like, well, you know, I'm going to pastor the church and my wife is going to stay home with the kids and, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm not asking her to have any responsibilities at the church. Now, it's nice that you think you can do that. But I'm telling you, that'll cost you. Your wife doesn't have to play the piano. She doesn't have to be a Sunday school teacher. 
at the very least, she has to be there. You cannot afford to let your your wife stay home. I'm t I'm talking about habitually. You know, your kids are going to be sick. Your wife's going to be sick. There are going to be things that arise, <clears throat> but your wife has to be in. She has to be in. She doesn't have to do everything. She has to do a lot of things. She has to do some things. She doesn't have to lead, but she has to support. And using your wife's personality, just this is the way you just explained to her. And you've got to be happy. Can I tell you guys, the way you act toward your wife is going to, and the way you talk about your church to your wife is often going to shape the way she thinks about your church. So if you come in and you're just exasperated with your church and you just dump all that on her, she's obviously going to take up an offense against them. So I'm telling you, I consciously, uh, I don't come in griping about things at church. I, I speak well of my church, my staff, my deacons to my wife. Because I don't want to do anything that's going to make her dislike them. I need her to love them. I need them to love her. I'm not going to do anything that pits them against each other. Now, I, I'm, I admit this sometimes means you're lonely with your thoughts. You can't share everything. And you, this is where you take it to the Lord. But you need to be honest about your wife and if you sharing those things with her brings her down, makes her resentful of the church, then keep them to yourself. Some of your wives will be the kind that can take that and not make any difference. Okay, acknowledge that. That's great. But if she's not like that, don't dump on her and cause her to really not enjoy your church family. There are some things I will admit, sometimes things get really, really, really bad. There is no hiding it. I get it. But I'm talking about your your default position. If you come home and all you do is gripe about what happened to church and your secretary or the deacons or whatever, you're not helping her. <clears throat> so do everything you can to make that marriage an asset, not a detriment, but because it's never going to be neutral. Number seven, crises are the greatest uh, points of growth and advance. Crises are the greatest points of growth and advance. And without them, you won't make progress as a pastor or as a church. <clears throat> and I can give you lots of examples of that. There's, there's just very few things that are going to put your church in a vulnerable situation like building. So if you ever have to remodel or build, man, just know it's coming. You're going to have disagreements about that. Excuse me. People are going to question the decisions that are made and who gets to make them. When we at Buck Run decided to relocate, you know what the most controversial step of all was? I, I predicted it, and then I got I got aggravated when it happened, uh, which made no sense. But the most controversial thing was who we put on the building committee because we got. At Buck Run, we don't have the 80-20 rule. At Buck Run, it's more like 50% of our congregation is super bought in. They're just, they're there. I, I put 18 people on the building committee, and I could have had four committees of 18 people. 
but I tried to get a cross section, young, old, new members, uh, longtime members, men, women, builders. Uh, you know, we, we, we thought through who we've got, who are the, it's like chess pieces. Let's get the 18 that we think will be the best mix, bring certain skill sets and expertise to it. And man, when I came out with the list, you're just going to get it. People are going to think, why am I not on? Why was I not asked? <clears throat> not only that, like I had one guy that I knew would be really critical, and I put him on the committee because I had to have him in the room. I, I, I couldn't have him taking shots at the decisions from outside the room. I had to make him a part of the process so that the 17 other people could answer his objections. And when we came out of that room, I could come out of there with an agreement. Now we're all on the same page here. We've made our decision. We've heard the objections in the room, and now we're all together. And it would hem him in a little bit. But, man, when I put him on there, I had people furious that I put him on there. They didn't understand my leadership principle that I had to have him in the room. <clears throat> so you're going to have those challenges. Um, and, and yet, I will tell you, that was a quantum leap forward for our church in every way. Church discipline. Man, if ever there was a thing that was going to be a flashpoint in your pastorate and your ministry, it's teaching church discipline. Now, we're going to talk about it later today in great detail. I'm only saying here. You're going to get people that accuse you of being judgmental and pharisaical. Uh, you're also going to discover that <clears throat> sometimes people are going to say, well, you're disciplining this guy, but what about so-and-so? And you're going to uncover stuff you didn't know, and there's more stuff out there that you've got to deal with. And this is a real, it's a danger zone, and yet it's essential to being obedient to the Lord. So discipline is a, one of those areas. And... Uh, Handling challenges to your leadership. You know, we've never done it that way before. The worship wars. Oh, my goodness. Try and change the worship style of a church. It's going to be a crisis. But it's also going to be essential. Because they're going to have to learn to trust you. And the only way they're going to have to learn that is you're going to have to lead them through some stuff. Number eight. <clears throat> Never let them smell fear or anger on you. Period. Full stop. Just, you cannot afford to show those emotions. Fear and anger invite problems. So you've got you to learn to just be cool as a cucumber when there's a challenge to your leadership or an accusation against you to not turn red. Now, Listen to me. You can feel anything you want to feel. Feelings are neither good nor bad, right nor wrong. You can feel whatever you want to feel. You just can't show what you feel. So if you feel afraid, that's okay. <clears throat> just don't show it. If you feel anger, that's fine. You can't show anger. So I told you about that building committee that I put together. When I went into our deacons with that list and I told them, you know, 
<clears throat> I, I tried to explain to them the process and the reasoning. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, we had to make sure that all those people on that list <clears throat> are uh, financially invested in our church, right? It's not right to have somebody on the list who's not giving. Uh, and so I had to give the list to our financial secretary and say, check this out. Just tell me if, if it seems to you that each of these are tithers. And we crossed off three people I originally put on that list. Uh, but you can't do that publicly, right? That, that, you can't do that publicly. So I go into the deacons with a list after it's been vetted by our financial secretary. And <clears throat> we've tried to put uh, the right people on this. <coughs> Excuse me. And the, um, immediately I got pushback. And somebody said, well, you're just throwing this on us and not giving us time to pray about it. I said, man, we've been talking about building for over 10 years. We've had plenty of time to pray about this. And well, you know, and somebody else jumped on that bandwagon and others took up an offense for me. And I, I was ticked. There's no two ways about it. I set myself up for failure because I anticipated that reaction. And then I got aggravated when I got it instead of saying, now, look, this is going to happen when it does. Keep your cool. I did. Here's the way I went into the meeting. I bet somebody, you know, objects to this because they're not on it. So, man, when it happened, I went, doggone it. I knew that was going to happen. And, boy, I, I sort of went at them. Uh, it's the one time in 16 years, I think, that I lost my cool. By that, I, 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 did, I just said to him, I said, well, <clears throat> I can't hear that. Is anything other than a disappointment that you're not on the list. Man, it was out of bounds. It was out of line. I'm the guy who brought the tension in the room. I want you to see that. When they say things to you, if you remain calm and cool and simply just answer sort of flatly, the tension didn't come in the room. When you remain in control, you'll, you'll survive that. But when you respond with tension, okay, now you got a bona fide problem. <clears throat> and I had to apologize, and I did. I apologized to those deacons privately, and then I did the next deacons meeting to the entire deacon fellowship because I brought tension in the room. Don't let them smell fear or anger on you. Those two things are almost never going to help you. <clears throat> and calmness and self-control suppress problems.